7. Zeus, and became the ancestress of all the Arcadians that island bear folk. In her bestial form she was just about to be slain by her own son when Zeus rescued her by raising her to the stars. Here we must notice first, that the Arcadians, like Australians, Red Indians, Bushmen, and many other wild races, and like the Bedouins, believe themselves to be descended from an animal. That the early Egyptians did the same is not improbable, for names of animals are found among the ancestors in the very oldest genealogical papyrus, as in the genealogies of the old English kings. Next the Arcadians transferred the ancestral bear to the heavens, and, in doing this, they resembled the Peruvians, of whom Acosta says, they adored the star Urchuchili, feigning it to be a ram, and worshipped two others, and say that one of them is a sheep, and the other a lamb. Others worshipped the star called the tiger. They were of opinion that there was not any beast or bird upon the earth, whose shape or image did not shine in the heavens. But to return to our bears, the Australians have, properly speaking, no bears. Though the animal called the native bear is looked up to by the aborigines with superstitious regard, but among the North American Indians, as the old missionaries Lafitau and Charlevoix observed, the four stars in front of our constellation are a bear, those in the tail are hunters who pursue him, the small star part is the pot in which they mean to cook him. It may be held that the red men derived their bear from the European settlers, but, as we have seen, an exact knowledge of the stars has always been useful if not essential to savages, and we venture to doubt whether they would confuse their nomenclature and sacred traditions by borrowing terms from trappers and squatters. But, if this is improbable, it seems almost impossible that all savage races should have borrowed their whole conception of the heavenly bodies from the myths of Greece. It is thus that Abed, a missionary of the last century, describes the Eskimo philosophy of the stars, the notions that the Greenlanders have as to the origin of the heavenly lights as Sunday moon, and stars are very nonsensical, in that they pretend they have formerly been as many of their own ancestors, who, on different accounts, were lifted up to heaven, and became such glorious celestial bodies. Again, he writes, their notions about the stars are that some of them have been men, and others different sorts, of animals and fishes. But every reader of Ovid knows that this was the very mythical theory of the Greeks and Romans. The Egyptians, again, worshipped Osiris, Isis, and the rest as ancestors. And there are even modern scholars, like Mr. Lofty in his essay of Scarabs, who hold Osiris to have been originally a real historical person. But the Egyptian priests who showed Plutarch the grave of Osiris, showed him, too, the stars into which Osiris, Isis, and Horus had been metamorphosed. Here, then, we have Greeks, Egyptians, and Eskimo, all agreed about the origin of the heavenly lights, all of opinion that they have formerly been as many of their own ancestors. The Australian general theory is, of the good men and women, after the deluge, Pangela kind of Zeus, or rather a sort of Prometheus of Australian mythology made stars. Sorcerers by rock can tell which stars were once good men and women. Here the sorcerers have the same knowledge as the Egyptian priests. Again, just as among the Arcadians, the progenitors of the existing tribes, whether birds, or beasts, or men, were set in the sky, and made to shine as stars. We have already given some Australian examples in the stories of the Pleiades, and of Castor and Pollux. We may add the case of the eagle. In Greece the eagle was the bird of Zeus, who carried off Ganymede to be the cupbearer of Olympus. Among the Australians this same constellation is called Totiargil. He was a man who, 
when bathing, was killed by a fabulous animal, a kind of kelpie, as Orion, in Greece, was killed by the scorpion, like Orion, he was placed among the stars, the Australians have a constellation named Eagle, but he is our sinus, or dog star, the Indians of the Amazon are in one tail with the Australians and Eskimo, Dr. Silva de Coutinho informs me, says Professor Hart, that the Indians of the Amazonas not only give names to many of the heavenly bodies, but also tell stories about them. The two stars that form the shoulders of Orion are said to be an old man and a boy in a canoe, chasing a pike's boy, by which name is designated a dark spot in the sky near the above constellation. The Indians also know monkey stars, crane stars, and palm tree stars. The Bushmen, almost the lowest tribe of South Africa, have the same star lore and much the same myths as the Greeks, Australians, Egyptians, and Eskimo. According to Dr. Bleak, stars, and even the sun and moon, were once mortals on earth, or even animals or inorganic substances, which happened to get translated to the skies. The sun was once a man, whose armpit radiated a limited amount of light round his house. Some children threw him into the sky, and there he shines, the Homeric hymn to Helios, in the same way, as Mr. Max Muller observes, looks on the sun as a half-god, almost a hero who had once lived on Earth. The pointers of the Southern Cross were two men who were lions, just as Callisto, in Arcadia, was a woman who was a bear. It is not at all rare in those queer philosophies, as in that of the Scandinavians, to find that the sun or moon has been a man or a woman. In Australian fable the moon was a man, the sun a woman of indifferent character, who appears at dawn in a coat of red kangaroo skins, the present of an admirer. In an old Mexican text the moon was a man, across whose face a god threw a rabbit, thus making the marks in the moon. 132 A many separate races seem to recognize the figure of a hare, where we see the man in the moon. In a Buddhist legend, an exemplary and altruistic hare was translated to the moon. To the common people in India the spots on the moon look like a hare, and Chandras, the god of the moon, carries a hare, hence the moon is called Sasan or Sasanka, hare mark. The Mongolians also see in these shadows the figure of a hare, 130 to be among the Eskimo. The moon is a girl, who always flees from her cruel brother, the Sunday because he disfigured her face. Elsewhere the sun is the girl, beloved by her own brother. The moon, she blackens her face to avert his affection. On the Rio Branco, and among the Torunda, the moon is a girl who loved her brother and visited him in the dark. He detected her wicked passion by drawing his blackened hand over her face. The marks betrayed her, and, as the spots on the moon, remain to this day. Among the New Zealanders and North American Indians the sun is a great beast, whom the hunters trapped and thrashed with cudgels. His blood is used in some New Zealand incantations, and, according to an Egyptian myth, was kneaded into clay at the making of man. But there is no end to similar sun myths in all of which the sun is regarded as a man, or even as a beast, to return to the stars the Red Indians, as Schoolcraft says, hold many of the planets to be transformed adventurers, the Iowas believed stars to be a sort of living creatures, one of them came down and talked to a hunter, and showed him where to find game, the Golinomeros of Central California, according to Mr. Bancroft, believe that the sun and moon were made and lighted up by the hawk and the coyote, who one day flew into each other's faces in the dark, and were determined to prevent such accidents in the future. 
but the very honest example of the survival of the notion that the stars are men or women is found in the packs of Aristophanes. Tridia is in that comedy has just made an expedition to heaven. A slave meets him, and asks him, Is not the story true, then, that we become stars when we die? The answer is certainly, and Tridius points out the star into which Ios of Chios has just been metamorphosed. Aristophanes is making fun of some popular Greek superstition, but that very superstition meets us in New Zealand. Heroes, says Mr. Taylor, were thought to become stars of greater or less brightness, according to the number of their victims slain in fight. The Aryan race is seldom far behind, when there are ludicrous notions to be credited or savage tales to be told. We have seen that Aristophanes, in Greece, knew the Eskimo doctrine that stars are souls of the dead. The Persians had the same belief. 134 A All the unnumbered stars were to reckon ghosts of men. 134 B The German folklore clings to the same belief. Stars are souls. When a child dies God makes a new star. Kegi quotes 134 C The same idea from the Veda. And from the Siddhapada Brahmana the thoroughly Australian notion that good men become stars. For a truly savage conception. It would be difficult. In South Africa or on the Amazons. To beat the following story from the Aetaria Brahmana III. 33. Pragapati, the master of life, conceived an incestuous passion for his own daughter, like Zeus, and Indra, and the Australian wooer in the Pleiad tale. He concealed himself under the shape of a beast, a robot, and approached his own daughter, who had assumed the form of a doe. The gods, in anger at the awful crime, made a monster to punish Pragapati. The monster sent an arrow through the god's body, he sprang into heaven, and, like the Arcadian bear, this Aryan robot became a constellation. He is among the stars of Orion, and his punisher, also now a star, island like the Greek Orion, a hunter, the daughter of Pragapati, the doe, became another constellation, and the avenging arrow is also a set of stars in the sky. What follows, about the origin of the gods called Adityas? is really too savage to be quoted by a chaste mythologist. It would be easy to multiply examples of this stage of thought among Aryans and savages, but we have probably brought forward enough for our purpose, and have expressly chosen instances from the most widely separated peoples. These instances, it will perhaps be admitted, suggest, if they do not prove, that the Greeks had received from tradition precisely the same sort of legends about the heavenly bodies as are current among Eskimo and Bushmen. New Zealanders and Iowas, as much, indeed, might be inferred from our own astronomical nomenclature. We now give two newly discovered stars names derived from distinguished people, as George Umsinus, or Herschel, or, again, merely technical appellatives, as Alpha, Beta, and the rest. We should never think when some new planet swims into our count of calling it Kangaroo, or Rabbit, or after the name of some hero of romance, as Rob Roy or Count Fosco, but the names of stars which we inherit from Greek mythology the Bear, the Pleiades, Castor and Pollux, and so forth for such as no people in our mental condition would originally think of bestowing. When Calimachus and the courtly astronomers of Alexandria pretended that the golden locks of Berenice were raised to the heavens, that was a mere piece of flattery constructed on the inherited model of legends about the crown corona of Ariadne. It seems evident enough that the older Greek names of stars are derived from a time when the ancestors of the Greeks were in the mental and imaginative condition of Iowas, Kankas, Bushmen, Murai, and New Zealanders. All these, 
and all other savage peoples, believe in a kind of equality and intercommunion among all things animate and inanimate. Stones are supposed in the Pacific Islands to be male and female and to propagate their species. Animals are believed to have human or superhuman intelligence, and speech, if they choose to exercise the gift. Stars are just on the same footing, and their movements are explained by the same ready system of universal anthropomorphism. Stars, fishes, gods, heroes, men, trees, clouds, and animals, all play their equal part in the confused dramas of savage thought and savage mythology. Even in practical life the change of a sorcerer into an animal is accepted as a familiar phenomenon, and the power of soaring among the stars is one on which the Australian Byrarch, or the Eskimo shaman, most plumes himself. It is not wonderful that things which are held possible in daily practice should be frequent features of mythology, hence the ready invention and belief of star legends, which in their turn fix the names of the heavenly bodies, nothing more, except the extreme tenacity of tradition and the inconvenience of changing a widely accepted name, is needed to account for the human and animal names of the stars. The Greeks received from the dayless past of savage intellect the myths, and the names of the constellations, and we have taken them, without inquiry, from the Greeks. Thus it happens that our celestial globes are just as queer menageries as any globes could be that were illustrated by Australians or American Indians, by Bushmen or Peruvian Aborigines, or Eskimo. It was savages, we may be tolerably certain, who first handed to science the names of the constellations, and provided Greece with the raw material of her astronomical myths as Bacon prettily says that we listen to the harsh ideas of earlier peoples blown softly through the flutes of the Grecians. This position has been disputed by Mr. Brown, in a work rather comically called The Law of Cosmic Order. Mr. Brown's theory is that the early Akkadians named the zodiacal signs after certain myths and festivals connected with the months. Thus the crab is a figure of the darkness power which seized the Akkadian solar hero, Tumuzi, and which is constantly represented in monstrous and draconic form. The bull, again, is connected with night and darkness, in relation to the horned moon, and island for other reasons, a nocturnal potency, few stars, to tell the truth, are diurnal potencies, Mr. Brown's explanations appear to me far-fetched and inconvincing, but, granting that the zodiacal signs reached Greece from Chaldea, Mr. Brown will hardly maintain that Australians, Melanesians, Iowas, Amazon Indians, Eskimo, and the rest borrowed their human and animal stars from Acadia. The belief in animal and human stars is practically universal among savages who have not attained the Acadian degree of culture. The belief, as Mr. Tyler has shown, is a natural result of savage ideas. We therefore infer that the Acadians, too, probably fell back for star names on what they inherited from the savage past. If the Greeks borrowed certain star names from the Acadians, they also, like the Aryans of India, retain plenty of savage star myths of their own, fables derived from the earliest astronomical guesses of early thought. The first moment in astronomical science arrives when the savage, looking at a star, says, like the child in the nursery poem, how I wonder what you are. The next moment comes when the savage has made his first rough practical observations of the movements of the heavenly body. His third step is to explain these to himself. Now science cannot offer any but a fanciful explanation beyond the sphere of experience. The experience of the savage is limited to the narrow world of his tribe, and of the beasts, birds, and fishes of his district. His philosophy, therefore, 
accounts for all phenomena on the supposition that the laws of the animate nature he observes are working everywhere. But his observations, misguided by his crude magical superstitions, have led him to believe in a state of equality and kinship between men and animals, and even in organic things. He often worships the very beasts he slays, he addresses them as if they understood him, he believes himself to be descended from the animals, and of their kindred. These confused ideas he applies to the stars, and recognizes in them men like himself, or beasts like those with which he conceives himself to be in such close human relations. There is scarcely a bird or beast but the Red Indian or the Australian will explain its peculiarities by a myth, like a page from Ovid's Metamorphoses. It was once a man or a woman, and has been changed to bird or beast by a god or a magician. Men, again, have originally been beasts, in his philosophy, and are descended from wolves, frogs or serpents, or monkeys. The heavenly bodies are traced to precisely the same sort of origin, and hence, we conclude, come their strange animal names, and the strange myths about them which appear in all ancient poetry. These names, in turn, have curiously affected human beliefs. Astrology is based on the opinion that a man's character and fate are determined by the stars under which he is born, and the nature of these stars is deduced from their names, so that the bear should have been found in the horoscope of Dr. Johnson. When Giordano Bruno wrote his satire against religion, the famous Spachodella Bissia Triumphant, he proposed to banish not only the gods but the beasts from heaven. He would call the stars, not the bear, or the swan, or the Pleiades, but truth, mercy, justice, and so forth, that men might be born, not under bestial, but moral influences, but the beasts have had too long possession of the stars to be easily dislodged, and the tenure of the bear and the swan will probably last as long as there is a science of astronomy, their names are not likely again to delude a philosopher into the opinion of Aristotle that the stars are animated. This argument had been worked out to the writer's satisfaction when he chanced to light on Mr. Max Muller's explanation of the name of the Great Bear. We have explained that name as only one out of countless similar appellations which men of every race give to the stars. These names, again, we have accounted for as the result of savage philosophy, which takes no great distinction between man and the things in the world, and looks on stars, beasts, birds, fishes, flowers and trees as men and women in disguise. Mr. Muller's theory is based on philological considerations. He thinks that the name of the great bear is the result of a mistake as to the meaning of words. There was in Sanskrit, he says, a root arc, or arch, meaning to be bright. The stars are called rickshaw, that island bright ones. In the Veda, the constellations here called the rickshaws, in the sense of the bright ones, would be homonymous in Sanskrit with the bears. Remember also that, Apparently without rhyme or reason, the same constellation is called by Greeks and Romans the bear. There is not the shadow of a likeness with a bear. You will now perceive the influence of words on thought, or the spontaneous growth of mythology. The name rickshaw was applied to the bear in the sense of the bright fescue's animal, and in that sense it became most popular in the later Sanskrit, and in Greek and Latin. The same name, in the sense of the bright ones, had been applied by the Vedic poets to the stars in general and more particularly to that constellation which in the northern parts of India was the most prominent. The etymological meaning, the bright stars, was forgotten, the popular meaning of rickshaw bear was known to everyone, and thus it happened that, when the Greeks had left their central home and settled in Europe, they retained the name of Arctos for the same unchanging stars, but, 
not knowing why those stars had originally received that name, they ceased to speak of them as Arctoi, or many bears, and spoke of them as the bear. This is a very good example of the philological way of explaining a myth. If once we admit that arc, or arch, in the sense of bright and of bear, existed, not only in Sanskrit, but in the undivided Aryan tongue, and that the name rickshaw, bear, became in that sense most popular in Greek and Latin, this theory seems more than plausible, but the explanation does not look so well if we examine, not only the Aryan, but all the known myths and names of the bear and the other stars. Professor Sace, a distinguished philologist, says we may not compare non-Aryan with Aryan myths. We have ventured to do so, however, in this paper, and have shown that the most widely severed races give the stars animal names, of which the bear is one example. Now, if the philologists wish to persuade us that it was decaying and half-forgotten language which caused men to give the names of animals to the stars, they must prove their case on an immense collection of instances on Iowa. Kanka, Murai, Maori, Brazilian, Peruvian, Mexican, Egyptian, Eskimo, instances, it would be the most amazing coincidence in the world if forgetfulness of the meaning of their own speech compelled tribes of every tongue and race to recognize men and beasts, cranes, cockatoos, serpents, monkeys, bears, and so forth, in the heavens, how came the misunderstood words always to be misunderstood in the same way? Does the philological explanation account for the enormous majority of the phenomena? If it fails, we may at least doubt whether it solves the one isolated case of the great bear among the Greeks and Romans. It must be observed that the philological explanation of Mr. Muller does not clear up the Arcadian story of their own descent from a she-bear who is now a star. Yet similar stories of the descent of tribes from animals are so widespread that it would be difficult to name the race or the quarter of the globe where they are not found. Are they all derived from misunderstood words meaning bright? These considerations appear to be a strong argument for comparing not only Aryan, but all attainable myths. We shall often find, if we take a wide view, that the philological explanation which seemed plausible in a single case is hopelessly narrow when applied to a large collection of parallel cases in languages of various families. Finally, in dealing with star myths, we adhere to the hypothesis of Mr. Tyler, from savagery up to civilization, Akkadian, Greek, or English, there may be traced in the mythology of the stars a course of thought, changed, indeed, in application, yet never broken in its evident connection from first to last. The savage sees individual stars as animate beings, or combines star groups into a living celestial creatures, or limbs of them, or objects connected with them while at the other extremity of the scale of civilization the modern astronomer keeps up just such ancient fancies, turning them to account in useful survival, as a means of mapping out the celestial globe, Moli and Mandragora, I have found out a new cure for rheumatism, said the lady beside whom it was my privilege to sit at dinner, you carry a potato about in your pocket, someone has written an amusing account of the behavior of a man who is finishing a book, he takes his ideas everywhere with him and broods over them, even at dinner, in the pauses of conversation. But here was a lady who kindly contributed to my studies and offered me folklore and survivals in cultivated Kensington. My mind had strayed from the potato cure to the New Zealand habit of carrying a baked yam at night to frighten away ghosts, and to the old English belief that a bit of bread kept in the pocket was sovereign against evil spirits. Why should ghosts dread the food of mortals when it is the custom of most races of mortals to feed ancestral ghosts? 
the human mind works pretty rapidly, and all this had passed through my brain while I replied, in tones of curiosity, a potato, yes, but it is not every potato that will do, I heard of the cure in the country, and when we came up to town, and my husband was complaining of rheumatism, I told one of the servants to get me a potato for Mr. Johnson's rheumatism, yes, ma'am, said the man, but it must be a stolen potato, I had forgotten that, well, one can't ask one's servants to steal potatoes, it is easy in the country, where you can pick one out of anybody's field, and what did you do, I asked, oh, I drove to Covent Garden and ordered a lot of fruit and flowers, while the man was not looking, I stole a potato a very little one, I don't think there was any harm in it, and did Mr. Johnson try the potato cure, yes, he carried it in his pocket, and now he is quite well, I told the doctor, and he says he knows of the cure, but he dares not recommend it, how oddly superstitions survive, the central idea of this modern folly about the potato is that you must filter the root, let us work the idea of the healing or magical order backwards, from Kensington to European folklore, and thence to classical times, to Homer, and to the Hottentots, turning first to Germany, we note the beliefs, not about the potato, but about another vegetable, the mandrake, of all roots, in German superstition, the all-round, or mandrake, is the most famous, the herb was conceived of, in the savage fashion, as a living human person, a kind of old witch-wife, again, the root has a human shape, if a hereditary thief who has preserved his chastity gets hung, the broad-leafed, yellow-flowered mandrake grows up, in his likeness, beneath the gallows from which he is suspended, the mandrake, like the moly, the magical herb above the odyssey, is hard for men to dig, he who desires to possess a mandrake must stop his ears with wax, so that he may not hear the deathly yells which the plant utters as it is being dragged out of the earth, then before sunrise, on a Friday, the amateur goes out with a dog, all black, makes three crosses round the mandrake, loosens the soil about the root, ties the root to the dog's tail, and offers the beast a piece of bread, the dog runs at the bread, drags out the mandrake root, and falls dead, killed by the horrible yell of the plant, the root is now taken up, washed with wine, wrapped in silk, laid in a casket, bathed every Friday, and clothed in a little new white smock every new moon, the mandrake acts, if thus considerately treated, as a kind of familiar spirit, every piece of coin put to her overnight is found doubled in the morning, gypsy folklore, and the folklore of American children, keep this belief in doubling deposits, the gypsies use the notion in what they call the great trick, some foolish rustic makes up his money in a parcel which he gives to the gypsy, the latter, after various ceremonies performed, returns the parcel, which is to be buried, the money will be found doubled by a certain date, of course when the owner unburies the parcel he finds nothing in it but brass buttons, in the same way, and with pious confidence, the American boy buries a marble in a hollow log, uttering the formula, what hasn't come here, come, what's here, stay here, and expects to find all the marbles he has ever lost, let us follow the belief in magical roots into the old pagan world, the ancients knew mandragora and the superstitions connected with it very well, Dioscorides mentions mandragoras, or animalon, or dersia, or circia, and says the Egyptians call it Abum, and Pythagoras anthroponorphon, in digging the root, Pliny says, there are some ceremonies observed, first they that go about this work, 
Look especially to this that the wine be not in their face, but blow upon their backs. Then with the point of a sword they draw three circles round about the plant, which done, they dig it up afterwards with their face unto the west. Pliny says nothing of the fetish qualities of the plant, as credited in modern and medieval Germany, but mentions sufficient it is with some bodies to cast them into sleep with the smell of mandrago. This is like Shakespeare's poppy and mandragora, and all the drowsy syrups of the world. Plato and Demosthenes 146a also speak of mandragora as a soporific. It is more to the purpose of magic that Columella mentions the half-human mandragora. Here we touch the origin of the mandric superstitions. The roots have a kind of fantastic resemblance to the human shape. Pliny describes them as being of a fleshy substance and tender. Now it is one of the recognized principles in magic that things like each other, however superficially, affect each other in a mystic way, and possess identical properties. Thus, in Melanesia, according to Mr. Codring, 146b a stone in the shape of a pig, of a breadfruit, of a yam, was a most valuable find, because it made pigs prolific, and fertilized breadfruit trees and yam plots. In Scotland, too, stones were called by the names of the limbs they resembled, as ice stain head stain, a patient washed the affected part of his body, and rubbed it well with the stone corresponding, 147a in precisely the same way, the mandric root, being thought to resemble the human body, was credited with human and superhuman powers, Josephus mentions 147b a plant not easily caught, which slips away from them that wish to gather it, and never stands still till certain repulsive rites are performed, these rites cannot well be reported here, but they are quite familiar to Red Indian and to Bushman magic. Another way to dig the plant spoken of by Josephus is by aid of the dog, as in the German superstition quoted from Grimm. Ilian also recommends the use of the dog to pluck the herb Agleophotis, which shines at night. 147c When the dog has dragged up the root, and died of terror, his body is to be buried on the spot with religious honors and secret sacred rites. So much for mandragora, which, like the healing potato, has to be acquired stealthily and with peril. Now let us examine the Homeric herb moly. The plant is thus introduced by Homer, in the tenth book of the Odyssey. Sirisa has turned Odysseus's men into swine. He sets forth to rescue them, trusting only to his sword. The god Hermes meets him, and offers him a charmed herb. This herb of grace Greek whereby he may subdue the magic wells of Sirisa. The plant is described by Homer with some minuteness. It was black at the root, but the flower was like to milk. Moly, the gods call it. But it is hard for mortal men to dig. Howbeit with the gods all things are possible. The etymologies given of moly are almost as numerous as the etymologists. One derivation, from the old Turanian tongue of Acadia, will be examined later. The scholiast authors the derivation Greek, to make charms of no avail. But this is exactly like Professor Blackie's etymological discovery that Arenes is derived from Greek, he might as well derive critic from criticize. The scholiast adds that Moly caused death to the person who dragged it out of the ground. This identification of Moly with Mandrake is probably based on Homer's remark that Moly is hard to dig. The black root and white flower of Moly are quite unlike the yellow flower and white fleshy root ascribed by Pliny to Mandrake. Only confusion is caused by regarding the two magical herbs as identical. But why are any herbs or roots magical? While some scholars, like D. Gubernades, seek an explanation in supposed myths about clouds and stars, 
it is enough for our purpose to observe that herbs really have medicinal pro, 